0: This is a portion of the Bible designed to build our hope, designed to build our confidence in the Lord. And uh, life can rattle our confidence. Life can be hard when so much of it is out of our control and so many things happen that can be difficult to cope with. I have friends in Fayetteville who live in Cincinnati, and they were hit by the tornado, uh, which I ordinarily would have said the recent tornadoes but it's been a whole season. Uh, but the tornadoes that hit Cincinnati in Northwest Arkansas, they were, they were in their home as the tornadoes came through Cincinnati. And uh, at, at first they thought to escape the house, but they couldn't open the doors because of the, the pressure system. And then the tornado lifted their home and, and moved it six feet off its foundation and set it back down, and they were fine. Uh, his, uh, the, the man's sister, Uh, In another home on a nearby property, she and her husband went into the closet, which was the only room in the house without windows, and when the tornado had passed, they opened the door and came out, and everything else was gone. The the entire house had disappeared in the storm. Uh, Life can be out of our control and scary. The world is full of massive And dangerous forces, not just natural forces, but even humanity and what we do to one another. Uh, We can feel uh, and have the mood uh, of the person in uh, Cat's Cradle, the the novel by Kurt Vonnegut, who um, in the midst of it discovers an important book entitled, What Can a Thoughtful Man Hope for Mankind on Earth? Given the experience of the last billion years. And so anxiously he opens the book and discovers there's but one word in it. Nothing. What can a thoughtful man hope for mankind? Nothing. Now why do I say all of this? I want to orient you to where we are in Isaiah before we read the passage. Because what you need to see in this text is that there's trouble coming for God's people. And before that trouble comes... He wants to build their confidence that he's in charge and they can trust in him. You may be asking the question this morning, Where does, where is your future headed? Where are the economic or family problems you're experiencing going? Well, for Isaiah, for the people of God, when we hit Isaiah chapter 40, um, he is... In the first 11 verses we won't read, he's telling them there's good news coming. The glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. God is going to come to his people. It's a prediction of the the Messiah, Savior, to come. And so at the end of Isaiah 40, in verse 11, he says, you know, proclaim good news to Jerusalem. Salvation is coming. Hey, this is wonderful. But what they don't know at this point is that that's 700 years in the future. And before the Messiah is revealed and comes to die so that we can be forgiven, things are going to get very ugly very quickly. Assyria, this massive nation of power to the north, is going to invade the northern kingdoms and wipe out what we call the Ten Tribes. And then later after that, the nation of Babylonia is going to come and attack And crush the southern kingdom. And lives are going to be wrecked. And families are going to be destroyed. And people are going to be uprooted. Some are going to be enslaved and taken to places that they do not want to go. Dreams will be crushed. Property will be destroyed. And the kingdom of God's believing people will seem to be crushed. And what the people are going to say to themselves, as we will read in verse 27, is... My way is hidden from the Lord, and my cause is disregarded by my God. Where is he? Does he not care? And so we want to enter into that this morning as we read God's response to them. Because what the prophet wants to do is to convince them that this is all part of God's good purpose for them and that they can trust in him. And so with that in mind, let me invite you to pay attention to God's word as He even speaks to us this morning. Isaiah chapter forty, beginning at verse twelve. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him to understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and Cast for it silver chains. He is, who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants, are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then Will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that this word would be like arrows and that you would pierce our hearts with its truth and bring us before you, and home to you, and build our trust in you, in Jesus' name. Amen. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you? What do you think God is like? Through a series of rhetorical questions in this text, the writer is trying to get them to use their imaginations and to contemplate the greatness of God in comparison to things that they know in their experience. In comparison to creation, in comparison to the nations, to idols, to people and world leaders, and even to the stars above. And he, in doing so, wants them to know who he is and live in light of that. And so I want to bring before you, by way of summary, five things we see about God here and two applications to our relationship with him. What do they learn about God? What does he tell us? Number one, in verses 12 through 14, he tells us that only God is incomparably huge. He begins with water, and he says, verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now, I spent a summer in New Jersey on the boardwalk working, and and almost every day I had the opportunity. I walked out onto the jetty, which is this giant man-made rock formation that sticks out into the ocean, and it goes out 100 yards or so, and it's supposed to break the waves to preserve the the land, the the sand, and so I would go out to the end of that jetty and be surrounded by crashing ocean water, and I would stand there and I would look out, and they say on a clear day you can see about 20 miles unobstructed to the horizon line, and I would imaginatively place myself at the end of that jetty, and I would go out 20 miles in my imagination and, and, and turn around and look back at the land behind all of North America. And then, and then I would turn back around and go another 20 miles. And then another 20 miles. And I would imagine myself crossing the ocean to England. And I would go 20 miles, 20 miles. And eventually I'm surrounded in every direction by water only. And when I have gone 150 times, then I begin to get near England, 3,000 miles away. Now I don't know if you can imagine how much water that is. Another, another way That's just the Atlantic Ocean. Another way to look at how much water there is is to to remember that the the deepest place in the ocean we know of is the Mariana Trench in the Pacific. And it's so deep, some 35,994 feet, they estimate, that you could take Mount Everest, turn it upside down, put it in the trench, and cover it with a mile of water. And what we know is this, that the Arctic Ocean is some half mile deep on average. The Atlantic Ocean and the Indian Oceans are over 12,000 feet deep or two miles deep on average. And the Pacific Ocean is some 13,000 feet deep on average. There is this enormous amount of water in the world. And God says, I measure the water in the hollow of my hand. And then he says, and with the breath of my hand, I mark off the heavens. I simply, as I look at a universe from, from here... As we look at a universe that is some, they say, 46 billion light years in radius from us or some 92 billion light years across by estimates, God says, I just mark it off with the span of my hand and think of the land and the size and scope of it. The writer says, God enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and he weighs it in the mountains on scales and the hills in a balance. It's as though he takes um, the mountains of Colorado, if you've ever been there. My sister-in-law moved there. Her goal is to climb all the 14ers. I guess there's some 53 peaks, some 14,000 feet high or more. God says, well, bring all those mountains together. and, And I just simply measure them on kitchen scales see God isn't small he isn't weak he isn't dominated by other things look what he's done could you have done any of that no and did he need any help no verse 14 says whom did he consult who made him understand none of us right and this 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 makes me think of Jesus in the New Testament when he's asleep on the back of a boat and these hardened, experienced, fisher- commercial fishermen are out with him. And they've been in every storm you can think of, and they get in a storm that makes them terrified. And Jesus is sleeping, and they say, Jesus, don't you care about us? And, and he just gets up, and, he's, and he just speaks a word, peace, be still. And the wind stops, and the waves stop. Why? Because he is incomparably huge. He dominates everything. And that means this, friends, for you and I, his people, there is no obstacle in our way that is bigger than him. And so Isaiah invites you to compare God to the biggest thing in creation creation itself. And then he says, maybe you're not captivated by the world of nature. Maybe what really floats your boat is the world of humanity. And so he turns to them and he says, well, compare me to the world of humanity for a moment. Organized humanity. Verses 15 through 17, he he compares himself to the nations. And he says this about himself, only God is indispensable to the world. See, in our day, people are pretty impressed by what goes on with great world powers. The Middle East is in turmoil, right? What will the UN do? Or what will NATO do? Or what will the United States do, people ask. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright once said that the United States of America is the lone indispensable nation. Well, in Isaiah's day, Assyria felt that way about themselves. And later, the Babylonian Empire felt that way. Or ancient Egypt. And today, people say, well, America is, is the indispensable nation of the 20th century in China will be the indispensable nation of the 21st century. People fear. And Isaiah says, what are these to God? Behold, he says, verse 15, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. They are, he says, lightweight and inconsequential in comparison to him. But Israel was in awe of them. And the church... Today Can be afraid of them, right? Nations have vast armies. They have massive resources. They have power and influence. God doesn't bat an eye to them, the scripture says. Verse 16 says, even the whole resources of the entire nation of Lebanon are not worthy of him. So that's the meaning of you could take all the wood and make it a fuel for fire for The altar of burnt offering. And it wouldn't be enough fuel to be worthy of him. And you could take all the beasts of the nation of Lebanon and sacrifice them all before the Lord as an offering of worship. And it wouldn't be worthy of him. Oh, I know some people think, you know, God, I can take him or leave him. The really important thing is democracy in Egypt or free market capitalism in America. That's not really the important thing. God is. Are you worried about the kingdom of God on earth? Are you worried about Christians being killed in China? Do you grieve that? You ought to. Does it bother you that Christians have been forced to flee Iraq since we went in to make things better? Or that Christians are arrested and killed in Iran? It ought to grieve us, but it should never make us despair. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And nothing can stop the advance of my church. Because he's bigger than the collective will of all the dictatorships and all the democracies that have ever been. All the nations, verse 17, are as nothing before him. Not just each nation, but all of them together. Organized humanity, even at its best, is nothing compared to him. Now you understand, verse 17 doesn't mean the nations mean nothing to him, as if he doesn't care about them. It means they are nothing before him in terms of their status. And so only God is indispensable to the world. Thirdly, we learn here that only God is uncontrollable. By religious humanity. And it's always the religious who try to control God. To whom then will you liken me, verse 18? Or what likeness will you compare me to? An idol? Think about what an idol is. A goldsmith throws gold on it. A silversmith adds silver. And if you can't afford those, you find wood that won't rot so the idol will last longer. And then you make it and you set it someplace. I was growing up in a home... Where my dad had two figurines. I didn't learn until I was out of the home that they were idols. They were physical representations for him of the spirit beings he believed watched over our family. And you know what those two figurines did my whole life? Nothing. They never said a word and they never moved until my mom couldn't take any longer and she threw them away. They're immobile, and they're mute. They do nothing. But what they do is they make, for the idol maker, they make that which is big small and controllable. See, he's here. See, they're watching over us. There they are. You see, but you can't do that to the God of Israel. You can't domesticate him. He's alive, he's real, he's risen from the dead, and you cannot control Jesus, you can't command Jesus, you can't demand from Jesus, nobody can. He's uncontrollable. And he's unquestionably sovereign, verses 21 to 24. Do you not know, he sits above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. One man put it this way, the world dwarfs us all, but God dwarfs, dwarfs the world. The world is his footstool above which he sits secure, and all the feverish activity of its billions does no more to affect him than the chirping and jumping of grasshoppers in the summer sun does to affect us. Now you may say, well, that's kind of true of the common man, the little people of the world, but... What about the movers and shakers and the leaders who seem to shape world events? People like, well, in their day, Sennacherib of Assyria or Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon or Alexander the Great of Greece or Nero of Rome. Don't those tyrants dominate? No. What about today? He brings princes to nothing, verse 23 it says. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. No Hitler, no Stalin, no Saddam Hussein can crush his purposes, just as no Mubarak, no Qaddafi, no Kim Jong-il can destroy his kingdom. Just as we might say no Obama or Boehner or the two of them playing golf together and figuring it all out. Not even the second coming of Ronald Reagan himself can rule the world. Look, you can think these men dominate the destiny of the world, but they do not. Scarcely are they planted, verse 24. Scarcely are they sown. Scarcely does their stem take root in the earth and he blows on them. And they wither. Like dandelions in a summer breeze, they just disappear. Only God is unquestionably in charge of all things. He's sovereign. And only God is invincible in power. Verses 25 and 26. To whom then? To whom then? After all this, will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift your eyes high and see. Look to these. And he's he's thinking of the stars. Who created all of these? He brings out their hosts by number, calls them each by name because of the greatness of his might. Not one of them is missing. Look, nothing will make you feel smaller or more insignificant than standing outside for hours on end in a dark sky lit only by stars. Contemplate how little you are and how massive the universe is. Just think of our star, the sun. It generates its energy they tell me, by nuclear fusion of hydrogen nuclei into helium. I don't know what that means. But the sun fuses 620 million tons of hydrogen each second. I don't know what that means. I know this. I know that a brief glance at a midday sun through unfiltered binoculars can cause instant and permanent blindness. I know that with the naked eye, permanent blindness happens through UV-induced sunburn-like lesions on the retina within 100 seconds. And our sun is but one of, they say, 200 billion stars in the galaxy we call the Milky Way, and they say that there are perhaps billions of galaxies with trillions of stars. And God, it says, he calls them each by name. He's their maker and their master, and they're all in his hand to do his will. What do they do? They shine light. And if half of them went missing, you and I wouldn't even notice. Unless it was ours, and we wouldn't be here. And to paraphrase Jesus, we might stop and say then this, And are you not much more valuable than many stars? You are made in God's image. It is for your sake that He sent His beloved Son into this world out of concern for you to redeem you from your sin, which He buried under the mountain of His mercy upon the cross. There is no power, therefore, at work in your life that He doesn't dwarf, that He doesn't control, That he can't redeem you from. That can stop his good purpose for for you. He's invincible in power. That's why Paul can say with confidence at the end of Romans chapter 8. Nothing can stand in the way of, of the love of God in Christ to us. Because the only thing that can stand in the way of the love of God for us. Is our sin. And he buried that. On the mountain of the cross. And so you're safe in the arms of Jesus. And so he hasn't abandoned us. The prophet says to Isaiah. And he says to you. He's incomparably huge. He's only, he only is indispensable to the world. He only is uncontrollable by the religious. He only is sovereign. He only is invincible in power. Now what does that mean for us? The, the writer says what it means for us how does he counsel them you see it beginning at verse 28 and following it amounts to this he says if you complain my way is hidden from the from my god and my cause is disregarded by my god then you have forgotten and your god is too small your thoughts of god are unworthy of him and you've become too big for your britches The first thing he does is he counters their theology my wife and I took a trip to Washington DC a year ago May it's almost a year ago just just a couple weeks ago now we have six children and we were there and our 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 little daughter Sarah Catherine was um, was seven years old at the time and she got frightened one day as my other kids did but she didn't get over it as quickly what happened was this we were walking in Chinatown which is a, a very much a a uh, visitor-friendly area. It's a tourist attraction. Broad daylight, a policeman on every corner directing traffic. We're walking, and, and one of my sons got ahead of me. And when I looked up, another, a, a stranger to us, a man, had come, and this was one of those kinds of guys that looked like he had you know, spent a lot of his life working out in prison. And he's doing this to my son. And I didn't know, is he trying, trying to sell him something, trying to give him something, or what? So I quickened my pace. And as I approached, the man looked back and saw me coming. And he stepped away from my son. And he turned towards me. And of course, you can imagine what he was doing. He was, he was, he was asking for money. He was an able-bodied, physically strong. And as I learned in a brief conversation, very mentally there, though perhaps a little bit unstable, begging for money. And when I didn't give him any, he did this. And he took his fingers, this is a little PG-13, he took his fingers like this and he put it to my forehead and he said to me, you're going to get yourself killed. Now as you can imagine, I'm, I'm I'm shooing my kids away to my wife Melina and trying to, you know, get get rid of them. And And I think at that point as the crowd began to gather around us, he realized perhaps he'd gone just a bit too far to work with police officers nearby, and he turned around after spitting in my face, and he jaywalked uh, across the street and left us. Scary moment? Uh, I felt safe the whole time. Uh, not because I'm some big bad pastor who just believes in God, but because it was broad daylight in the middle of Washington, D.C. My kids didn't understand that. My kids were fearful and afraid. Of course, they wanted to know, well, Dad, what did he say to you? And, Dad, what did you say to him? And all these things. After I explained, you know, the situation and didn't tell them all that the man had said, of course, my kids were at ease. And we went on, except for Sarah Catherine. And she carried it for a few more days. And I didn't realize that, that all the tenseness had bottled up inside her. And she was just a wreck until it, it all came out again. Daddy! Daddy! What if he had had a gun? And I said, sweetheart, he didn't have a gun. That's why he used his fingers and it was broad daylight and all this But daddy, what if he got in a fight with you? Now you understand, as a minister and as her father who's a Christian, I ought to have said something like, sweetheart, we can trust Jesus. But what came out of my mouth was, oh, sweetheart, daddy would have kicked his butt. (laughs) Now look, you make your own judgment as to whether that would have been the case. But here's the deal. What is he doing? He is countering their theology of God. He is saying to them, your father in heaven is tougher than any thug. He's bigger than any problem. The creator of the universe has no weakness And no ignorance. And your greatest need and your problem is not a fix, but God himself. So don't be afraid, I would say to you, of theology. Don't be afraid of thinking thoughts about God. Everybody does. The question is, are you thinking the right thoughts about God, biblical thoughts of God, worthy of him? And he says, he can handle your worst. And so he says, trust me. And that's where he closes. Trust me. Trust me, he says, you are weak, you are frail. Even the best specimens of humanity in strength, the young, growing saplings of vigorous manhood, he says, who you can bend them over and they snap back up, even they grow tired and weary, stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, they will renew their strength, they will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Why? Because he shares his strength with the weary. Listen, your circumstances, they can't confuse him. They can't befuddle him. They can't stifle him. You can't control him and you can't manipulate him and you can't always understand him. But what you can do is hope in him. Lean on him. After all, Didn't this incomparably great, indispensable to the world, uncontrollable by the religious, unquestionably sovereign and invincibly powerful God creator go to the cross for you just as he promised? He who was strong became weak so that you through his weakness might be made strong. Let's pray. Our father in heaven, honor yourself, glorify yourself and produce in our hearts, not just worthy thoughts of you and affections for you, but confidence in you as we know you, as you are in Jesus name. Amen.